2: Hello, everybody, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Renee Garfinkel, your host on the New Books Network with the Van Leer Jerusalem series on ideas. We're very pleased to have Armstrong Williams on the show today to talk about his new book, What Black and White America Must Do Now, A Prescription to Move Beyond Race. Armstrong Williams is an American political commentator, entrepreneur, author, and host of the Armstrong Williams Show, a nationally broadcast show that airs on Sinclair Broadcast Group and Howard Stern Holdings Affiliates. He served as Dr. Ben Carson's business manager and as executive director, editor of the American Currency Magazine in partnership with the Washington Times newspaper. Williams is also one of the largest minority owners of broadcast television stations in the United States. He's also a good friend. Armstrong Williams, Welcome to the podcast.
0: Oh, Ride, you know, I have such respect for you and your husband, Jay. Uh, I mean, you are really one of the American stories. Uh, though you live and reside in Jerusalem, just just a wonderful human being, um, there's no commentary like the commentary when we have you on the airwaves. Your homework, your intellect, your compassion, and your even-handedness it's always resonates with people.
2: Well, thank you so much. Let's plunge right into the important topics you touch on in, in your book. In general, the state of race relations in America today is disha- are disheartening. There are loud, angry voices demanding change. How is your prescription for change different from the others?
0: Well, I grew up differently. Um, I grew up in the Deep South um, on my family's farm we certainly were isolated because we did not have neighbors. Um, and, you know, there are certain things that happens, particularly in a child's life, that can shape them forever and can have a profound impact on their view of life. You know, my parents um, grew up working on the sharecropper's farm. And during the 40s, my father came to the realization that he did not want his children They brought working for, let's say, quote, unquote, the man working on the farm. My father wanted them to know what respect and freedom um, and being justly compensated for their work. Not deal with the horrors of the insults, which could happen sometimes, which he and my mother experienced. So my father felt that it was critical that he buy his own farm. But during that time, Renee, during the 40s, a black man could not buy land. He had to find someone who was white to front for them and so there was this gentleman who had a lot of respect for my father mr. Buckingham Davis who heard my father's clarion call and understood the importance of what he was trying to do for his children and so he decided to front for my father and buying this farm which eventually cost $800 which was a lot of money in the forties but my father paid him and two very interesting things happened when my father purchased this land Um. The blacks were upset with my father because they felt he was trying to be better than they were. And the whites were upset because, with my father because they felt he did not know his place. And they were also upset with Mr. Davis for buying that man for land for somebody who was black. But my father always said, It doesn't matter what you do in life, son, people are going to criticize you. You just got to hold on to your faith. You got to build something. And you silence your critics through your success and the success of your children. That's why education is so important. And my father built this beautiful farm and he had these fabulous red horses and this fabulous barn and was awakened one Sunday morning to the barn ablaze in flame, sort of like what we see with these um, California wildfires. That's what it it was like to my father in such horror. When he ran out that morning, uh, he realized that not only were the barns Burnt to the ground, but his beautiful red horses also uh, met their de- demise in, in those flames. And you could see three white gentlemen walking away with three gas canisters in their hands. And my brother, who's much older than I was at the time, yelled at my father, You ask us to respect people, don't see people in a racist prism, but no matter what the black man does, the white man is gonna always try to keep their foot on their neck. We just can never progress. And my father, in the moment of his loss, in his agony, in his defeat, in his anguish, stop my brother in mid-sentence and say, wait a minute. Those are not three white men. Those are three individuals filled with hatred, bigotry, jealous, and malice. And they are and they and they alone are responsible and accountable for their actions. You never see people who happens to look like them and think that's what everybody's capable of. And that's who they are we've got to judge people by individuals and 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 so that was profound for me so as a kid i never grew up saying just because the cops arrested someone who looked like me that was also going to be my story um and also on the flip side um you judge people based on their character. so before even um it began to resonate in many ways about judging people not by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. This was long a staple of our household with my parents. So I never grew up group- grouping people together. I always believed in the rugged individual, judging people alone by their actions and not saying just because people look the same or you say they're white, black, or Jewish or Latino, they're all capable of the same horrible things.
2: You credit your father as well with inspiring the book with his belief that everybody has a past, every sinner has a future, and everybody can change. Tell us about your relationship with another father figure, an unlikely source of inspiration, Senator Strom Thurmond of South Carolina.
0: Well, you know, know, as a kid, um, and I grew up in integrated schools, my schools were never segregated, but I read, I read the papers and we were, Spent a lot of time in the library and Strom Thurmond was a fascination. I'd always read about it. But everything I heard about him was that he was a racist. He was a bigot and he didn't really like people of color. And I remember when I was 16, my father had heard that Senator Thurmond was going to speak at the Drydock Seafood Hut in Mullins, South Carolina. It was a rare opportunity for him to come. Um, to our community and my father said, you know in, in the middle of his crop. He said, you know what? You and I are gonna have to um, stop work around 11 and clean ourselves up because I want I want you to meet Senator Thurman because the farm is not going to always do well I can see the handwriting on the wall And I just want to create a better opportunity for you and your brothers and sisters because you're not gonna be able to live on the farm And he said I want you to meet Senator the Thurman and by the time Renee we arrived at the drydock seafood hut the program had ended. Senator Thurman was beginning his exit, and I ran up to him uh, without hesitation and extended my hand and said, "My name is Armstrong Williams. My father wanted me to meet you, but I also hear you're racist." And I could just look at the, the look on my father's face. But the senator, had, for Senator Thurman, he chuckled. He said, "You seem like a bright young man. Uh, if when when you go to college, because I assume you're going to college." In, You decide you want to intern. I want you to come to D.C. and intern with me every summer that you want to. And you figure out whether you think I'm a racist or not. And sure enough, a few Mm -hmm. years later, when I was at South Carolina State, uh, uh, my father gave me an option of coming back and working in those tall and sweating tobacco fields where we were sand lugging, uh, toppling Mm -hmm. and suckling tobacco. I mean, in in the heat wave, there's unlike anything you can ever imagine And so my father said, you know, it's a good time for you to follow up on Senator Thurman's um, offer. And sure enough, Renee was crazy. I called Senator Thurman, identified who I was and reminded him of what happened a few years back. And I must tell you, later that afternoon, he called me back and he said, of course I remembered you. I was wondering if you would have a call. And sure enough, I took him up and went to intern for him. And he talked to me about his own bigotry, and his own racism, being a segregationist. Telling me that's not necessarily what was in his heart but he did it for political reasons and, and but for him being a christian man it really bothered him because that's not who he really was and at the time when i met him he was in his 70s and he talked about how he wanted to bring about a change things cannot be remain the same and how he championed the voting rights act the renewal of the voting rights act senator thurman was the reason why martin luther king jr's holiday bill passed i'll never forget through my relationship with Colorado scott king because she had heard that I had a relationship with him, and she asked me to introduce him to him. And that flourished a great relationship. I remember when George Bush Sr. was um, inaugurated in his first term. We got special passes, and Mrs. King and a diverse group of us went to her his office, and he hosted us for reception. We got the best seats at the inauguration, and then we attended a uh, one of the inaugural balls later that night with um, Lee Atwater. Um, and and I think it was um, this great blues singer, um, and it was a great concert. And you know, I learned from that. Everybody has a past, but everybody has a future. And people can change. And the thing that was very ironic, I remember when people were beginning to realize that Senator Thurman was my hero and my surrogate father. Uh, they just could not believe this guy with the segregationist past could have defended this young brother. And so I told Senator Thurman, I want to prove to people that you're my mentor, that you're my ally. He said, I get it, I get it. He said, so what you should do is throw a party, because he had been to my apartment before, it was a roasted, brooch-infested apartment, only about 300 square feet. He said, I want you to host a party uh, at your um, apartment and tell people that your guest of honor is going to be your mentor, Senator Strong Thurman. And I tell you, Renee, the place was packed. Nobody believed Senator Thurman would show up. And on the day of the event, senator thurman was asking me what should i say what should i say and i've been listening to this Barry white song about change it's time for change nothing remains the same so i sent senator thurman's uh, chief of staff did his uh, no duke short the lyrics uh and sure enough senator thurman showed up and he started saying it's time for change i've changed and the predominantly black uh, audience which is about 250 people all around the, all the way around the corner They were weeping to see that change. And I was so proud because people finally believed that Senator Thurman was not only my mentor, but that he really supported me.
2: I love that story. It's very encouraging. And there are stories on the other side in your experience as well. Uh, Racism struck your family back in 2015 in the harshest way when your cousin was murdered by a white supremacist. In the face of that kind of murderous hate, how do you manage to avoid bitterness and pessimism about race relations in the States?
0: You know, you speak of my cousin Clemente Pinckney. His his grandmother and my father's mother, my um, grandmother, were sisters. Uh, You know, it's not easy. Um, It's not something that happens overnight. It's something that I've been a part of who I am all my life, my faith. I've seen tragedy, I've seen injustice. You know, for me personally, Renee, I've never experienced racism. It's never impacted my life. I cannot say I've ever been denied an opportunity because of race, whether it's in the media world or on the television stations, or owning car dealerships or owning the hotels. Um, I've just been blessed because I don't, I decide what I'm gonna rent space to in my brain. And while, the hurt and the devastation of the loss of not only my cousin Clemente, but other eight who died for no reason at all because this kid Dylan Root, just in his viciousness and the warped mentality of growing up in his household, how he viewed blacks and how he wanted to start a race war, and not only was it reflective in my value system, but if you look at the state of South Carolina and particularly Charleston where this took place, the one thing they asked him to do, no rioting, no burning, no looting, no violence. We forgive him. We forgive him when we pray for that family. And I'm telling you, when you do that, you you, you seize tomorrow high ground and the world is at your feet. And so, you know, you got to forgive, even though you weep at night when nobody's watching. Your heart is heavy. You realize that you never know the invisible hand of God. We never know what God is gonna do um, in the future, but you gotta trust. It's called this blind faith. Um, you you know, you can't begin to doubt him because in your life you know too much about him. So, so think about faith and also seeing in my mother the forgiveness and the fact this is how we raise. You forgive but you don't forget, but it doesn't mean that you don't meet out punishment for. The, the injustice that was committed against people who were taken away from their families and did not get to see their daughters marry and their sons graduate is just a horrific thing. But we still have to forgive and, and just continue to pray for the healing of our nation and the world.
1: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com/system all lowercase to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com/system.
2: The slogan these days for people who want to uh, express the fact that they think there should be equality and justice and dignity for all is Black Lives Matter. You've been pretty critical of that organization. What what are the problems with Black Lives Matter, the organization, the movement, the foundation? Tell us about that.
0: Well, you know, um, I, I had a chance to interview Alicia Garza, who was one of the three founders of Black Lives Matter. And questions that I asked and the responses, their refusal to denounce the looting, the rioting and the burning, their refusal to denounce Antifa. They wanted to blame everything on the white man in the system. They had no interest on the black-on-black crime in Chicago or anywhere else in the country. They saw that as a different standard and of less relevance. And then you go on their website and they are proud Marxists and communists. And they're not, they don't believe in the traditional family. And when you go to their Black Lives Matters Global Foundation, which is another organization that you don't hear much about, there's very little transparency in how the money is spent and where the money is coming from and the millions and millions of dollars. And they, their unapologetic feeling about Jews and anti-Semitism in this country. And so I realized that, you know, while they may have started out with good intentions, They've been co op um, they've been bankrupt, their value systems are not just those, they're not American values. And in some ways, you wonder whether or not in some of their actions, whether it's a domestic terrorist organization.
2: The the protests around the country uh, about uh, inequality in general, but they really started, all of them were sparked, by police abuse and even killings of Black Americans, most of them male. You suggest that slow to hire, quick to fire might have prevented some of the egregious police abuse. Explain that to us.
0: Well, you know, it's interesting that you asked me that question. Because even after writing my book, which I had to write in 12 days, um, I've evolved even more. And let me explain this to you. You know, Minnesota, Minneapolis, Minnesota, which has some of the most stringent, toughest laws against police brutality, because so many people in leadership now were once protesters. They protested, they were protesters, and they were the victims of that police brutality. And they had the most, the toughest laws on the book. And even with those laws, what happened still happened. And the realization I've come to is this, is that 95% of law enforcement immediately de-escalate the situation. They calm it down. They don't pull out their weapons, nor their batons, or even their tasers. They have become unbelievable in managing that situation where there's no further harm and no further damage. And you ask yourself, why is it that 95% of them can get it right? And five percent can't, and we generally focus on that road cops, which is the five percent. And what it comes down to, individual accountability and responsibility. In the end, you can have all the laws in the book. Just like you, as a parent, you can raise your children. You can give them the best values. You can give them the best virtues, the best circumstances, the best examples. But still, in the end, that child has to choose. That child has to choose. And so, um, when you talk about Um, the question that you just asked me in terms of police brutality, the problem with all this is that depending upon the race of the victim and whether the police officer is white or not, the mainstream media and other media makes that a story about race. And it really should not matter what George Floyd's color was or what the law enforcement officer was. What should matter is that an innocent life died and had a a knee placed on his neck for almost 10 minutes for no reason at all. We should be outraged by the lack of humanity and the fact that a piece of us was also chipped away. But when you reduce it to race, you say to some people, well, you cannot be as outraged and as moved and as devastated because as I am because you're Jewish or because you're white or because you're Hispanic and you're Asian and you lose the moral high ground. Everybody needs to be outraged. It doesn't matter what the color Brianna Taylor was of the fact that she was a woman, a piece of all of us that chipped away. And while it may be Brianna today and George Floyd yesterday and uh, next month, it's going to be somebody else. The issue is law enforcement. The issue is why do some people continue to do this? You have all these situations with Breonna, Aubrey, and, and still police officers still continue this behavior. However few, it continues because the fact is that is the choice that they make. And what you have to do is punish them to the full extent of the law. You cannot protect them. You cannot pass them on from one jurisdiction to the next. um, Those records should not be private. People should be aware that they have this kind of sickness, behavior, and thinking in their DNA. And so what you have to do is make that information available, and you should not pass these law enforcements on to one percent, to another, because all you become is an enabler. And it's not as if this behavior is going to get better. It's going to get worse and worse to where it eventually leads to the death of innocent people.
2: Uh, A journalist I read recently, uh, someone who covers international affairs, he noted a uniquely American obsession with defining black and white and seeing diversity elsewhere. He said... Korean and Japanese, Chinese and Filipino are seen as different races in the U.S. census, but people from Finland, Turkey, Armenia, Syria, and Uzbekistan, all of whom uh, look differently, they're all considered white. What do you think about that observation?
0: You know, it's a business. It's an exploitive business. People make money on these census. They make money by balkanizing and categorizing and dividing people. I mean, it's so irrelevant. I mean, I've known you for so long. I've never cared about your race. I don't care about I care about the fact that you're a human being. I don't make my judgments about you by what you look like. I base it on the trust, the loyal, the honor, just like we scheduled this this morning. We gave my word, I'm here. You know, all these other things about race, like Dr. Carson talks about, if you peel back the brain and scalp and you open it up, we all look the same, we bleed the same people use this to divide us they don't want us to heal these wounds they wanted to keep us in conflict this is a created construct by man and while it's real in in instances because there are people that you cannot legislate their heart they want to make judgments about people because of their own insecurities and their own fear i mean understand this this thing about race it's just not really real until we come to the understanding that hey my name is Armstrong Williams. Let us get to know each other. where well, you break down all these barriers, then and only then will things begin to change. And we also have made tremendous progress in this, but you don't hear enough about it. People don't talk about it. Yes, it's easy to categorize somebody altogether as why and somebody as something else. But at the end, we're individuals with our own fears, our own aspirations, our own ambitions, our own challenges. We just want to create a better life for ourselves. I think basically we all want the same thing.
2: Well, you mentioned the role of the media, so let's talk about that for a moment. You're a prominent member of the media yourself as a columnist, broadcaster, and owner. You know the system inside out. So why do you feel the media are divisive? What's their motivation?
0: The media has decided, and I've never seen anything like this before, in the era of Donald Trump, that Donald Trump was not worthy to be elected. We know that the Mueller investigation was bogus you can see it from the steel dossiers and the files that have been revealed uh, in these hearings. Uh, we know it was a plot to try to overthrow, uh, to get Trump out of the White House. I mean, there's stories in the news about it today. It's been in the news this week. And so they decided they know better than the people. They want to do the, undo the will of the people in that November 2016 elections. And so their agenda is not one of reported in news, it's a propaganda against this president. And and they and this let's look at the polls for when president trump ran against hillary clinton they said there was no chance that trump had a chance of winning hillary clinton was going to win it by a landslide she bought into it and all of a sudden american people spoke differently and now they're telling us again that trump Is losing in the polls, and now they're telling us it's a statistical dead heat in places like Minnesota. So listen, it's all about their credibility, because even as much as they think that they control the mind of the American people and can tell them who to vote for, they don't want them to decide what is best for them. They think they can tell them who Donald Trump is, who Joe Biden is, and the American people reject it. The American people reject it more so because they feel that media Hypo- they're hypocrites, they're biased, they've lost their journalists' extent, they find nothing to say about the president, no matter what his policies are. No different when we we're at the White House on early in the week celebrating the Abraham Accords uh andrea mitchell who's a foreign park co- co- correspondent for nbc news said it wasn't really a middle east treaty peace treaty to really get together anyhow and while you may give donald trump credit they just don't want to give him any credit they want to say that it's not even historic. and you and i both know this is a big deal and people see this say donald trump cannot be bad all the time He's criticized and we can understand this and the american people like the underdog they see the unfairness so they believe they have to defend the president and they have to condemn the media and it's the media that continues to squander away their credibility and standing in the world.
2: And you think it's only the anti-Trump media that benefit from the divisiveness, not the pro-Trump media?
0: It's both. It's all the same. But but, but it's nothing like the anti-Trump media. I, I, no one has ever said anything like this. There's no comparison. You don't even hear much about Joe Biden. They give him a pass because it's not about electing Joe Biden. It's about defeating Donald Trump. It's about Nancy Pelosi that was trying to take back the House and Chuck Truman trying to take back the Senate. This is about power. This is why they're not going to allow the stimulus bill to pass because they're not going to allow Trump to put another Five or $600 in the pockets of the American people because they know they will lose ground, they will lose votes. So this is all about any means necessary to defeat him and relate Democrats back to power in November.
2: Well, let's look at this situation constructively. In your book, you suggest that one way of reframing our perspective about social unrest is to look at it as if it's just energy, wind. Uh, you write a strong wind is a good wind as long as we know how to set sail. So talk about becoming energy agnostic or wind neutral, and and how we can think more constructively about the political situation and the racial conflict.
0: You know, it's true. I also challenge myself in the book along what you just meant about the headwind is looking at the protest differently. Colin Kaepernick, Beyonce. Um, these NBA stars. I mean, I mean, you think about it. The military is political. You, they fly the aircraft, They wave the flag. And people don't understand that's part of politics too. And, and while we may not like the protest and I agonize over this, I really agonize over it. It's a way that, that you express your freedom. It's a way that you express yourself. It's not violent. It's not uncivil. So people may say it's disrespectful. And even with Colin Kaepernick, it was, a, it was an army general that told him that the best thing that he could do uh, in terms of protesting, what he does not uh, understand that they don't really feel that black lives are mattered in this country, to take the knee. Uh, obviously, the NFL is paying a price for it and other sports are paying a price for it because their viewership is down almost 60%. But you know what? We've got to allow peaceful protests. We've got to allow these other voices to be heard as long as people are civil and respectful. But when you get into that territory where you become violent, you're looting, you're burning. Those people should be um, punished to the full extent of the law. That is why Attorney General Barr is speaking out about this, not about domestic terrorism, holding them to a much stricter and higher standard. In fact, I interviewed the Attorney General this week in Wilmington, Delaware. And so because that becomes un-American, these people work hard to build their businesses, um, their property, and for you to just come out and, and disrespect it and destroy I saw in France just this week where these mass covered thugs looked at a car that was a Mercedes-Benz and it represented capitalism and wealth to them, and they just destroyed it, punched out the windows, having no idea who that car owner was, who probably may have shared many of their values, but it's, they hate capitalism. They want to uh, they want to the rise up in socialism. Yes, there's there's a yes, we should celebrate free speech. We should give people the space to do this. But in the meantime, we've got to condemn this violent behavior.
2: Absolutely. Uh, and it's even more destructive in this time of the coronavirus. So uh, people are struggling enough as it is.
0: And you have these factors uh, that are exploiting this situation. They're taking advantage of it. They don't care about George Floyd. They don't care about racism. A lot of these people are being paid for and bought to destroy the American way of life. They know they can't de- defeat us through our economy and through our military, so they bring up disruption. They paint this propaganda. They, intend to, they intimidate people. And many of these people are not even from these communities. And even the protesters, the people's protesters, say, we did not ask you to come. Why are you doing this? Why are you polluting our cause? Why? Because their agenda is to destroy and divide America. And you never know where this dark money comes from. That's funding them to do these things.
2: Yeah, well, there's money on all sides. And uh, that's, that is that uh, is a problem. That's a problem in politics in general, beyond the scope of what we're talking about today. But finally, and most importantly, Armstrong, people generally easily think that they just can't make a difference. They're individuals, they're powerless. You think otherwise, talk about that.
0: Well, you know, one person with courage and conviction makes uh, a majority. Uh, People make a difference, even in conversations, you know, never know sometimes how much you impact people, their ideas, their philosophy, because I think people need to be challenged. And I think if everybody agrees, somebody's not necessary. I love the way you challenged me on my ideology, on my thinking to make me better. I don't take it personal because I wanna be better because look, an unexamined life is not worth leading and an unexamined political philosophy is not worth following. You know, it's the reason why you go to the doctor every two years. You can't assume that what the doctor found two years ago is what he's gonna find two years later. You gotta have constant examination. And so and no matter how much you may have invested in your ideology, and and your thinking and your philosophy if you find a higher truth I, for me i would abandon that philosophy and and my ideology and a heartbeat because it's truth that i see and some people have invested so much of their ideology and philosophy that even when they realize it's wrong and outdated they refuse to change it because they don't want to bend what they've invested so much in for so many decades and years. And so the, the issue is that we're all are evolving. We're all are trying to be better. They're no different than I told you that since I wrote my book, I've evolved, I've become better. I wanna learn, I wanna grow. I wanna learn from others. I don't wanna be afraid to talk to people like Black Lives Matter, Antifa, are communists and socialists, because I believe and I feel so strongly my ideas and my ideology that I'm able to make them think differently. And that's what I've been able to do. And for people to think that they have no influence, read books. Um, talk about the values and, and the consistent moral uh, um, teachings that have worked since the beginning of our nation. Everybody has a value. Everybody is necessary. Everybody has a reason. Everybody has a purpose. And if you don't share that, uh, even if if it's with your family or, uh, or if with your friends, you've got to challenge people to think higher and be more civil and more thoughtful in their thinking and not always given to the least common denominator which is a destructive and uncivil way of thinking and behavior
2: yeah it's a lot easier to be angry and critical than it is to get up and try to do something yeah absolutely well well armstrong i wish you lots of good luck with your new book what black and white america must do now a prescription to move beyond race it's been a pleasure as it always is to talk with you Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you.
0: God bless you and your family. You know you're in my presence. Thank you for not just making a difference, but for being the difference.
2: Thank you, Armstrong. Take care. Bye-bye.